ago this week that my, my family and I um, moved to the Bay. Uh, we, on, a year ago on Wednesday, we moved into Peyton, um, and we were very privileged to move into a house with a big old garden, but it needed a lot of love. Um, it, it, it needed like, a lot of love. Now, it's really hard for me to overstate just how bad I am at gardening, just how little I know about gardening, but I've got a lot of enthusiasm, and I think that's important, maybe. Um, but Athena and I, my wife, we, we've been attempting to kind of cultivate our garden, get some sort of shape out of it over the last year. But there's still a lot we need to learn. We, we're still learning what kind of soil is good for specific plants, what, how to treat and look after things, what sort of flowers are good for bees, and that sort of thing, because that's quite important, isn't it? How to get rid of weeds, recognizing which ones are weeds. That's, that's been an important one for me. I won't go into that story, but... Um, all of, these, all of these things, though, they've dominated our experience of the garden. When really, if, if I'm honest, we just want to sit and enjoy the garden. And Jesus often used gardening-based metaphors. And I think he did so partly because life is a lot like that, isn't it? There's so much to think about, so much to prepare, so much to sort out. And at times in life, all of those things just feel like they get on top of us and can stop us from really enjoying life. Sometimes those things can build up so much that they almost diminish our sense of hope. Will we ever just be able to sit down and enjoy the garden? But we're not supposed to live lives where our hope is diminishing. Quite the opposite, in fact. In fact, Jesus said that he's come to bring us life and life in all of its fullness and abundance. But just like gardens, our lives need a bit of cultivating and shaping in order to live the kind of life which Jesus offers to each and every one of us. In John 15, Jesus says that our lives will bear fruit when we abide in him. And that's the passage we're going to be exploring over the next month together. And there are four important gardens in the Bible. The one at the beginning of the Bible, where Adam and Eve live, but where sin enters into the world. We've got some little, little icons for this. Yeah, there we go. There's the little apple one. Um, the one at the beginning of the Bible where Adam and Eve live, there are two key gardens we see in the life of Jesus. One the night before his death and one the morning of his resurrection. And then there's the garden at the end of the Bible where we have this, this beautiful picture painted for us of this recreated world. We're going to use these four gardens over the next month as our sort of overall structure, our overall narrative for this series. And we're going to look to John 15 for providing us lessons along the way in how we can learn to cultivate lives of hope. And so this morning, we begin with our first garden, the Garden of Eden. So let's delve into the Bible together. I'm going to ask Esther, would you, would you mind coming and, and reading God's word for us? That'd be great. Thanks, Meg. Thank you. Good morning. So this morning's reading comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, 
she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The snake deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Esther. So, as we begin a series of talks on hope, this Bible passage where everything goes completely wrong seems like the obvious place to start, right? Yeah? Great, great. Um, so a quick recap of the story so far, because it's important that we recognize that Genesis 3 isn't where the story begins. It's, sure, it's the third chapter in the Bible, but there's a lot that's already happened. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see this beautiful picture of God's good and perfect creation. God brings life and order and all sorts of beauty out of nothingness. Then he makes these particular creatures called humans. And who have, they have this privilege of reflecting him and reflecting his image, being made in his image. And remarkably, he commissions these humans to kind of share in him with the work of harnessing creation in some way. And so the order of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 looks a bit like this. We've got God at the top. We've got humanity next. And then we've got creation. So God is reigning over humans and creation. And when we're talking creation, we're talking like everything that's not humans or God. So God is reigning over humans and creation, and he invites humans to join in with him in looking after creation. And he places these humans in this beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden, and all is well. But what happens in our passage for today uh, in Genesis 3 is that this serpent comes seemingly out of nowhere and offers these humans, to take, these humans the chance to take God out of the equation. For it to just be humanity and creation. For humans to rule creation alone. As it says in verse 5, for humans to be like God. But the consequence for these humans of rebelling against God's beautiful order is that actually things go the other way. God's good order is turned on its head by sin. And human beings find themselves on the receiving end of creation. This is actually how things end up. And actually, a little bit after our reading, what, what Esther read for, for us, after, after, if we read on into verses 17 and 19, we, we see how, how good and beautiful things, like our relationship with the earth, our relationships with one another and our, and our children, even our relationship with things like, like work and food and sex and childbirth, they all, these good and beautiful things, are now warped and turned upside down by the brokenness of sin. And Adam and Eve are banished from Eden which forever becomes tainted. Not as the garden of creation, but now it becomes, has this taintedness about it where it's become the garden of sin. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling more hopeful already. Right? Yay! 
But I do think there's something really helpful in these passages in helping us to consider how we might cultivate lives of hope. Often, though, I think we can skip over them because, to be, to be frank, we feel a bit uncomfortable about the concept of sin, and that's, that's totally fine. It's quite understandable, isn't it, really, to feel a bit awkward about this concept of sin. I don't know about you, but actually I find it really hard to kind of grasp what we're even talking about. I've, I've heard so many different narratives from different people about what we're talking about, this little three-letter word, sin. What are we even talking about? And over the centuries, the church has gained a reputation, maybe, for, for kind of using the word sin to just beat people over the head for essentially having too much fun, or for, for trying out new things, new things um, that challenge us a little bit too much. We told people at one point that rock and roll was inherently sinful. We told people at one point that video games were inherently sinful. As someone here with a PlayStation 4 and used to be in a band, I, you know, a bit awkward now that I'm a vicar, isn't it? Like, but here we are. We even at one point, um, sound team, I'm going to be really annoying actually. This is, at one point, we told people, is this on? Why not? There we go. I don't know how to use it, mate. I don't, oh, there we go. Master level, that'll help. Right, that's a nice, like, that's nice, isn't it? At one point, we told people that this was sinful. In the, mid, in the, mid, in the, in the Middle Ages, we were like, no, can't play that. Not allowed that chord. We even called it the, the devil in music and just banned it. Told people that specific chord was sinful. Look it up. It's fascinating. I won't go into it now. I could ramble on for ages. But anyway, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of things that we can do in this world which are indeed sinful. But when the Bible talks about sin, it isn't primarily just talking about lists of individual naughty things that we shouldn't do. The concept of sin isn't actually mainly about our ethics. It's a little bit about our ethics, but it's mainly about our relationship to God and our relationships to one another and realizing who we are in light of all of that. We are made for loving relationship with God. And flowing from that, we're made for loving relationship with one another. And so in Matthew's gospel, we, we find this, this account of Jesus being asked by an expert in the Jewish laws. He says, which is the greatest commandment in God's law? And he's basically asking Jesus, Jesus, what's, what's the best way of living? And Jesus replies with these beautiful words. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This, Jesus tells us, is God's vision of the good life for us as humans. This is what it looks like to live like we're living in Eden. And you'll notice that it's all done in community. We're called to be in loving community with God and loving community with one another. The theologian Robert Jensen says that sin can be most simply defined as whatever breaks up this community. Specifically, sin refers to the fact that human beings reject our fellowship with God and subsequently with one another. So, for example, greed. Greed isn't evil or sinful because God sort of disapproves of possessions as such. Greed is sinful because a greedy, greed undermines community. A greedy person takes and takes and takes and doesn't give it back to the community. The key point is that God has made us, and he's made us for relationship with himself and for relationship with one another. And so in many ways, sin is, is really, is therefore nothing less than the condition of rebelling against the, what we really are at heart. 
children of God, made for relationship with him. It's a condition of rebelling against what we fundamentally are. And so here's why we're starting this series of hope, this series on hope in the garden of sin. Because in order to cultivate a beautiful garden, you have to be able to recognize the weeds and uproot them. In the same way, in order to cultivate lives of hope, we have to be able to recognize sin so that by the grace of God, we can uproot it in our lives and in our society. And the way we do that is first and foremost by allowing God to reign over us once again and joining him as his co-workers in harnessing the beauty and potential of all creation. And John, in, in John 15, Jesus puts it like this. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. My father is the gardener. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. God, our father, is the gardener. When we let God be in control of the garden of our lives, when we remember that he is Lord of all that he has made, then all will be well. When we, when we try to take control, though, we, we live in complicity with the condition of sin, and it all goes wrong to the extent that we, we ourselves can't even really tell what's sin and what's not sin. A bit like me trying to work out what's a weed and what's not a weed in my garden. And don't get me wrong, this is a daily battle. We live in a fallen world where sin and shame and death are very vivid realities. But we also live in a world which Christ has died for and Christ has risen for. Sin and shame have been defeated. Death has lost its sting. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can all experience the reality of the Father's grace being poured out on us the moment we turn around and repent of our sin. And so if we want to cultivate lives of hope, I want to just draw out two brief points from Genesis 3 to help us consider how we're supposed to respond to the reality of sin in our beautiful but broken world. And so the first point, firstly, we need to recognize sin. We need to recognize the reality of sin. We only have to look at the headlines in the, in, in the news for, to, for maybe like a few minutes to recognize that something in our world is deeply broken. And if we want to be people who hope that these broken things can be made right again, that everything sad can come untrue, as it says in Lord of the Rings, then we've got to understand why these things are broken. Hope requires realism about sin and about the brokenness of our world. Sometimes, though, we can, we can imagine, can't we, that, that hope is this delicate little thing all about good vibes and thinking positive thoughts and shoving all of our negative thoughts into a place where we'll never find them, just sort of ignoring them, sweeping them under the carpet. And this kind of thinking is, is actually so prevalent in our, in our culture that psychologists have a name for it. It's called toxic positivity. And it's very different to the hopeful positivity we want to be known for here at Bay Church. Um, I watch a lot of kids' TV programs at the moment because I have small children, not because it's on my level. But um, I, one of my favorites at the moment is a Lego movie. Me and, my, me and my daughter, we've been watching, watching the Lego movie a lot. And I've really overthought it. I do this a lot with my, my daughter's TV programs. I really overthink. Paw Patrol, I've overthought that way too much. Like, what budget cuts happened that meant that these seven dogs and their 10-year-old leader had to take on all of the work of the emergency services. I don't know what happened there, but I've overthought it. I wasn't even going to mention that. Lego movie, the Lego movie, I've overthought it, but I think there's some really great truths in there. And so I just want to show a little clip um, from that, um, where we find our heroes, we find Emmett, 
Wildstar, Petruvius, and Batman entering into a new city called Cloud Cuckoo Land. And it's led by um, this overly positive princess called Princess Unikitty. And she, here we are finding out what rules exist in Cloud Cuckoo Land. <laughs> uh, um, so Princess Unikitty, she goes through the entire movie pretending that everything is awesome. Everything is super great. And she shoves, as she said there, she shoves all of her negative thoughts down into a place where she can never, ever find them. And so often we're told that this is what it looks like to be a positive or hopeful person. When in reality, this is the very definition of toxic positivity that psychologists point to. We ignore our problems, which leads to hiding our complex emotions. And so we dismiss anything else in the world which is complex as well, including the complex needs or emotions of other people. And the irony is that in the Lego movie, um, because of her relentlessly positive attitude, Princess Unikitty is unable to react properly or healthily when bad things happen. She's even, in later movies, she's not even able to tell who the baddies are. She can't tell when people are acting with evil motives. And it's the same for us sometimes. We, we can't live with a mindset of toxic positivity where we ignore the very fact that sin and brokenness exist in our world. To put it bluntly, to ignore the reality of sin in our world is to fail to recognize it. And if we fail to recognize it, we're powerless to rebel against its effects. And so it's vital that we understand these two different voices that are whispering to Eve in Genesis 3. The serpent's voice is full of toxic positivity in verses 1 and 4. Did God really say you shouldn't eat from the tree? Are you sure? I think you'll be fine. You won't die. Nothing bad will happen. There's not a problem here. Just, just go ahead and eat it. Just go ahead and go your own way. It'll be fine. The serpent's voice seems to be positive, seems to be encouraging, right? But actually, it's full of toxicity and deathly lies. And that is how the Satan, our accuser, our enemy, operates by warping and twisting and lying about the good things God has given us and making it sound like it will be a good thing to go our own way without God. But in stark contrast, God's voice even after the fall, comes with realistic questions, not angry or dismissive rebuke. These are his children. Where are you? Who told you you're naked? Have you eaten from the tree? These are questions, yes, but if, if God is truly all-knowing, as, as Christians believe he is, then, then these are questions which God already knows the answer to. So why is he asking these questions? Because God recognizes the true reality and brokenness of the situation. And he's trying to help Adam and Eve to recognize it themselves through these questions. My, my grandmother died a few years ago um, after a really long battle with dementia. Um, fun story. Um, and, and when you see a loved one wrestle with dementia, you, you feel so aware of the brokenness and fallenness of the world that we live in. Her death obviously brought up all sorts of complex emotions for me, all sorts of things to process. But I remember when I left work the, d the day before the funeral, I remember getting up from my desk and saying, oh, I'm, I'm not in tomorrow, I'm at my nan's funeral. And one of my colleagues, God bless them, they meant well, they really meant well. But they said, hope it all goes well, you'll get through this. And I remember just being like, I do I want to get through this? Do I want to get through grief? Do it, should I get through this? Is that how grief works? I don't want to go through this because it feels like I'd be dishonoring my grandmother if I just sort of get through this. How can I just get through this? 
And actually, that person's well-meaning words were actually a prime example of just like sort of casual bit of toxic positivity making me feel terrible. And we, we all do it. Like, we want to make people feel better. I get it. But in that moment, I was like, oh, that's not what I need right now. What I needed was hope. And hope in those days came in the form of my, my lovely wife. Um, she accompanied me to sit and pray at my dying grandmother's bedside. And she sat with me in the presence uh, and in silence on the day that my grandmother died. And she held my hand and, and wept with me as, as I wept at the funeral. And that was what was needed. That was hope. Not a trite soundbite or an encouragement to move on, but somebody who understood the brokenness and sadness of the situation and who came with me on the journey through it anyway. And that is what Jesus offers us. He is the vine and he asks us to remain in him, to simply remain in him, to be with him, to recognize that he is always with us in every high and every low, not offering us trite sound bites, but offering us loving relationship and hopeful companionship through all of the highs and lows of life and offering to take the burdens of our difficulties upon himself. When we abide in Jesus and let our lives be tended to by the gracious hands of our heavenly father, the gardener, we're able to recognize the sin in our own lives. And when we invite Jesus to deal with that sin, we're invited by him to join him with rooting it out, rooting out its effects in our world. So in cultivating lives of hope, once we've recognized the weed in the garden of our lives, we need to uproot it. So my second point of this, once we've recognized sin, the next thing we do is we need to repent of it. And again, repent is a funny word which has a bit of a baggage attached to it these days. Not the sort of word that you bring out at parties that often, I've, I've found. I won't tell you that story. But, um, uh, but it literally means to turn around. To turn around and ask God the gardener to uproot the weeds of sin in our lives because we can't do it in our own strength. Now, you might be thinking, whoa now, Gareth. We, we've only just got to know each other, but I'm actually a pretty good person. Thank you very much. There's not much sin to root out in my life. And I don't doubt that you're a good person at all. You all look lovely. Um, it's just that no matter how good or kind or brave or loving we are, I, th I think if we're honest, we've all got stuff in our lives that we regret. We've all got stuff that we're not particularly proud of. We've all got things that we, we carry around with us where we're like, oh, I got that wrong. Oh, that clings to me and I don't like it. St. Paul puts it pretty bluntly in the New Testament. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's interesting because even in our culture where, where the idea of sin is often rejected, the reality of the shame produced by sin that comes hand in hand with it, that reality persists. Most people are, are not down with the idea that they've transgressed in, in some way against a higher moral authority. Um, and I get it. It can be seen as kind of, you know, oppressive and unhelpful sometimes. But most people are still keenly aware of some sort of awful gap between the person that they are and the person that they want to be. Because the reality of sin is that it makes us less than who we are. We shrink back from being the people that God has made us to be, and we feel ashamed about it. And so for Adam and Eve, they went from the reality of being made to live face to face with God, to hiding themselves away and using whatever they could find to hide the things they felt ashamed of. 
we find Adam and Eve grabbing some fig leaves and sewing them together to cover up their nakedness. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong or sinful about fig leaves. You'll be, you'll be glad to hear. I know a lot of fig leaves fans in here. Um, but, but now that their relationship with creation is broken, it's interesting that Adam and Eve are using a part of creation to try and cover up the fact that their relationship with God is broken and to try and hide the shame of their relationships with each other being broken. And it's a fig leaf that's, that's desperately used by Adam and Eve to cover up their shame. But for us, it might be something else. Little fact about me, I was this height when I was about 12 or 13. I just grew and grew and grew and then just sort of stopped. And, and it meant that I was the tallest in my year at school, and it meant that I stuck out like a sore thumb. I'm also dyspraxic, and so to be frank, I'm, I'm constantly bashing into things and breaking stuff. Um, and all of this, you know, combined together, there I was, giant 12-year-old with limbs that he could barely control. I was ripe for bullying. And that's what happened for most of my early years of secondary school. Um, and so really, I, I believed every lie that these bullies would speak over me. And, and I just grew up to be pretty ashamed of my body, to be honest. And so just like Adam and Eve, I reached for something to cover up my shame. I very quickly realized that my height also meant that I could get served alcohol in the local corner shop. And all of a sudden, I went from being the kid who got bullied to being the coolest kid in the school. All of a sudden, I had these, all of these new friends who wanted to hang out with me. And so I used to spend my weekends as, as a teenager um, just in the park with all of these new friends from school, drinking and getting drunk. And I used to drink a lot, and I used to drink often, and I used to drink to cover up the shame of who other people had told me that I was. I don't know about you, um, but I found that when you're drunk, you make bad decisions. Um, and you, I started to impact, it started to impact and spread out into the lives of people that I loved. And that just heaped more and more shame. I was trying to cover up the shame with more things that brought shame, and it just was this never-ending cycle. But there came a day when I was 17, when I'd somehow ended up on a weekend away with a bunch of Christians. And so there I was, not really sure who I was or what I wanted to be, but knowing something had to change. And I sat on this tree stump outside the place where we were, we were all staying, and, and I remember thinking, something seems to be working for these Christians. And so not really knowing how to pray, I began to pray. I said to Jesus, I said, come on then, if you're real, I need you now. And I had this beautiful encounter with Jesus, where I decided to repent of the sin and shame in my life, where I decided to turn away from who bullies and alcohol and peer pressure said I was. And I, in faith, I decided to turn towards who God said I was, a beloved child of his. I don't get it perfect every day. I try my best. But repentance is simply about turning away from our broken way of living and turning towards a hopeful way of living with God. Asking God to remove the weeds and the brambles and the rubbish of sin from our life and inviting him to help us live a life which is more like the one we were made to live. Living a life of hopeful repentance is about not shrinking back from who we are, but stepping into the fullness and the beauty of who God has made us to be. Recognizing that, sure, we're going to get it wrong along the way. I certainly still get lots of things wrong. And that's the reality of living in a fallen world. 
But being a person of hope is about having a posture that is fundamentally turned away from the sin and shame in our lives and is turned towards Jesus. And all of the fullness and abundance of life which he offers to each and every one of us. Jesus lived the perfect life. He lived without sin, but he also died the perfect death where he took all of the sin and shame of this world, all of our sin and shame upon himself on the cross and defeated it by his death. And so Jesus has, in a very real way, known the anguish of your most painful days. He's known the parts where it felt like sin and brokenness and death would have the last laugh in your life. And he has dealt with them. Because of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection, death has now lost its sting. Sin and shame no longer have the last laugh in your life. The lies that the enemy, the Satan, the serpent have been speaking over you, and the life you have been, um, all of these things, that they've been overcome with the life and truth of who Jesus says that you are. You are a beautiful child of God. You are his child. And so in order to cultivate lives of hope, we have to recognize sin. We have to repent of sin and allow God to redeem the places where sin once dwelt. Jesus is the vine. He's our model for what a hopeful person looks like. A hopeful person is realistic about the presence of sin in our world. But if we want to be people of of hope, then we have to take stock of the brokenness of our world and in our own lives. Don't ignore it. We don't dismiss it as trivial. We don't push it deep down inside like Princess Unikitty. But nor do we wallow in our sin. And nor do we wallow in the shame that it produces. Instead, in cultivating lives of hope, we turn to God the gardener and allow him to uproot the weeds in our lives and then to plant seeds of hope in the soil that remains. Because I believe that if we really grasp this, we'll see our lives and our communities filled with the hope of Christ. When we recognize sin and repent of it, the hope that the Holy Spirit is able to cultivate in our lives isn't a delicate or fragile little thing. It's not about thinking positive thoughts. This hope is gritty. It's determined. This hope is realistic about the rubbish and sin in our world. But to be people of this hope is to be a people of resolve. A people who prayerfully bring into being another world other than that which is before us. A world set on seeing God's kingdom come and God's will be done on earth as in heaven. So friends, let's place our hope in our God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one who helps us to recognize sin, repent of sin, and who is inviting us to join in with him in redeeming all things. Let us be a people who recognize that God is the gardener, and that a repentant heart is the most fertile soil in which the gardener can plant beautiful seeds of hope. Amen. Amen.